You're listening to The Music Tricked Me, a podcast by French recording engineer Elise Mollet, where music insiders talk about their experience in the industry and all the tricks they've learned along the way. The music tricked me. Well, good evening, Aaron. Hello. <laughs> Hi there. How are you keeping? I'm good, yeah. Keeping well. How was your day? Uh, pretty busy. Uh, a little bit of lecturing, a couple of meetings with students. So, uh, yeah, just overall kind of one of those busy days we're all experiencing at the minute. Is your year usually busy all the time? Would you have a break uh, during the summer? I do have a little bit of a break in the summer, kind of July and August. But at the same time, then I might be working on my own projects or doing stuff outside of that, like consulting with clients or stuff. So um normally try to take a little bit quieter in the summer months, um, which is nice. Not everyone can get to do that. So hashtag blessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. Anyway, on The Music Tricked Me, it's a pleasure to have you. And we'll be talking today. I'm going to bombard you with questions about rights and royalties. So I hope you're ready for that. Um, and for people to understand what you've done, do you want to give us a quick overview of your career path? Yeah, um, I, I come from a farm in Longford, which is kind of not the, you know, the, an odd place to kind of start your music industry career. But I grew up uh, in a farming background in Longford and my kind of initial thoughts of what I wanted to be was I wanted to be a drummer. I thought I kind of um, would like to get into the drumming scene and, and play with bands and, and create music and record music. And I started off my education in a three-tier course. It was kind of like generic business studies meets sound engineering meets music technology and instrument building. So it was like making guitars, making mandolins, sheet music stands, doing kind of um, studio sessions in the recording studio in the college and then just learning business. And from that point onwards, I really started like falling in love with music business. I really enjoyed what really felt like a chaotic industry, like good chaotic energy. And it felt like a place where you could, if you were really interested, find a place for yourself, find a role and, and grow and learn. When I was in college, I, I was doing some uh, lecturing. And while I was doing that, I recognised that there was a master's in music business management in the University of Westminster in the UK. I was offered um, like a half fee scholarship um, to go over and study and I did that after I finished my, my four-year degree. And when I went over there, I had this like great experiences, like um, getting internships in like artist development companies. I was doing tour assisting with bands like Savages. I was getting to study like intellectual property and copyright management and some of the stuff that I was really kind of falling for. And it really led me into an area called music publishing where I started learning about data and I started learning about like songs and how important they are, you know, the, the, the nucleus of the entire concept of like music publishing and the industry. And um, I came back after studying and after doing some work over there and I set up a record store in Athlone. Um, I wanted to have a place where artists could essentially kind of stock their wares. Like CD and vinyl was not something that every shop would give you space for as an independent artist. It was really hard to get into HMV and Golden Discs and all the other stores. So we wanted to give artists a chance to have their music placed. So if they were making physical product, um, we could stock it. And um, I started um, working as head of music in a small 50 capacity theatre in Athlone at that time. Now I say 50 cap, 50 capacity. It's very hard to keep the lights on. It's very hard to put on a gig and make everything work financially. But what was really nice about the venue 
was that it had a lobby and I decided I want to put the store into the lobby during the day and then in the evening I would put on events and we had acts that would come and, you know, they'd be charging 25, 30 euro a ticket. But what they really loved about the venue was the actual room sound. It was a lovely sounding room and we would kind of, as part of the deal, get them to take like a stereo out of the uh, desk and then essentially they would use it to, you know, potentially live albums, live singles, something to upload. And it worked out on a kind of a barter system. I really enjoyed it. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was really, it was really interesting because I got to kind of meld a little bit of what I'd done in college and a little bit of this. Um, in 2012, I went to this conference called Sligo Music Industry Day. So it was a one day conference up in Sligo in the Northwest. And I met someone there from Imro, Claire, and I was talking to her briefly and maybe talked a little bit longer. And um, then I went back to Athlone. I kept doing my thing. And I was reached out to then a year later on LinkedIn. And she'd said to me, there's this job going in Imro. And I think you'd be really good fit because you have some experience in your artist development and publishing and working with writers. And um, I went up, I interviewed for it. I had a very embarrassing moment where I called the interviewer Mammy. (laughs) <laughs> not great <laughs> I say this I called the interviewer mommy but it was after I got offered the job so um, you know maybe maybe she could have rescinded the offer but at the same time I got offered the job and I moved up to Dublin and that's when I started working in an organisation called IMRO the Irish Music Rights Organisation uh, a collection society a PRO performing rights organisation that looks after collecting royalties for songwriters and music publishers I worked there for about five years, kind of working in a number of different roles. And I finished up as the senior international executive there looking after kind of international royalties. We can we can go into that further <laughs> in a bit. But I, I started doing that in something like December 2016. And I moved on in about March 2018. And at that point, I set up as an independent music rights and royalty consultant. Um, so I have a number of clients. They are record labels, managers who want to chat, artists, songwriters, music publishers, accountants, lawyers, non-governmental organisations. And at that point in September 2018, I then took on a role as a, a lecturer in BIM. I loved the idea of music business and I really felt that initially when I was going to do this master's, that it was with the hope of getting into education someday, a third level education. And it really came full circle and it was just a lovely feeling to think, wow, you can actually have a dream and achieve it. Like it just felt like it was like, this is something that normal people don't, doesn't happen to normal people. And it was great. And I've been there since. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Aaron, I didn't know half of it because uh, I mainly know you for, like, it's an impressive journey. It's great. Um, I, I know you mainly from uh, BIM. We actually bumped into one another. And uh, I remember you left a striking impression because um you were maybe the lecturer just after me or before me, and the uh, and the students just came so came came out of it so excited, and I was like, oh, this is great, oh, it's amazing. Like he talks, and you were like running slightly late because you're just so passionate about. <laughs> is that poor time management on my no, side? <laughs> no, because I'm the same. I can't finish a class on time. Ask anyone. I can't finish a lecture on time. And and I thought straight away, it, it was just like seeing the, the passion that you had transmitting your knowledge um, was amazing. So, yeah. And so now it, it makes sense for you people um, to understand why today we can talk about rights, rights and royalties with you. Um, and to start with, can you tell us what are rights and royalties and why is it important for um, artists, um, you know, labels to be aware of that? Yeah, well, 
we hear the word right all the time and, you know, we hear of words like human rights and, and, and different kind of, you know, different rights that we all feel that we're entitled to. But it is important to understand that certain rights are enshrined in law and we should respect the rights that others enjoy, but also understand that sometimes we are entitled to certain rights as well. Um, you know, working in the workplace has certain rights, you know, uh, abilities as a, as a human being, the right to shelter and food and clean water, these kind of things that we all enjoy for the most part. Right now, there's never been a better opportunity than ever to release music. It's been completely democratised. It's no longer a case where you need to be signed to a major label just to be with a chance to release a piece of music. Now anyone can find a distributor uh, online, a low-tier distributor or aggregator and, and identify a way of releasing their music and it can just get up there. But the thing is, we are seeing kind of a period of saturation now. 100,000 tracks are uploaded every day onto Spotify and at this point when so many people are using music, it's important to know that the people who create that piece of music, the people who record and produce pieces of music have rights as well. And they may be in some cases entitled to some form of remuneration or, or royalties for the use of that music. So that's kind of a jumping off point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and more specifically, what um, would be music rights and royalties? So the thing is like, Normally when we hear a track, we don't normally think of the separate copyrights that go into this. So someone has created that song. They've written the music or the lyrics. They've been involved in the production aspects or they've paid for the recording to take place. And what happens there is that there are a different kind of silos or um, filters that, that are applied where we have to ask who was involved in this process, who is seen as the owner, and then who is entitled to some form of remuneration if a use happens. So radio play, TV usage, cinema usage, if it's uh, streamed, if it's downloaded, if it's played live, if it's been reproduced, if it's been married to film, TV, video games, advertising. It's all about the person who uses the music and are they gaining, is there benefit to that music being married into that other piece of potentially media? So... They're the rights, but obviously the royalties then can be wide and varied. There's any number of different types of royalties. And and really when it comes to being an artist and being or being a manager or being a record label or a publisher, sometimes it's knowledge management and trying to understand these are the things that I'm entitled to. Uh, if someone was to use my music, I may be entitled to some form of remuneration. That That's kind of really where it comes from. Um, so rights and royalties come in all the time into everyday life. You think of a... I use this example sometimes, like a butcher's in Claire Morris that's like, you know, doing its work. They have people there that are there during the day. They could have a TV on in the back uh, break room for staff. They could have uh, a radio playing in the front for people that are coming in just to have listen to some music while they're browsing goods. There's added value there for the business uh, because it's creating some sort of ambience. It's creating some sort of restful period. It's maybe a higher tempo song in the morning can make everyone work a bit more, be a bit more productive. And because there's value added, it's deemed that the artist, the songwriter, the label, the publisher should see something from that. And that's normally where royalties come in to play in the first instance. Okay. And um, say you're an artist. What are the different steps? When do you need to um, start thinking about copywriting? Is it just when you start humming a melody, when you have like a few words or do you need to finish song? What are the different steps? What, when and how does it happen? The first step, there's a word called IP or intellectual property, which is this um, intangible creation of the human mind that, you know, we all have and we all have ideas in our heads of things that um, we'd like to do, whether it's a song we'd like to write, maybe it's a recipe for dinner, maybe it's like we all have these things. 
But in order for them to become manifest, real in the, and tangible in the human world, we have to express them materially. So for us, when we talk about artists and songwriters and creators, the idea that you have in your head can't be owned. The only way that that idea can be owned is if you actually make and express that idea tangible. You make it so that if I want to own this idea for a song, I've got to write the lyrics out. I've got to create a voice note on my phone. I've got to go into a studio and track it. I've got to go and write out the guitar tabs, the drum tablature, the whatever, any sort of notation, sheet music. And even now the stems and session files that you create in those sessions can be proof of ownership. So once you manifest that idea into real life, that then affords you certain rights of property, for example, ownership. And being seen as the owner can then mean that I'm now the owner, so therefore any use of my music can result then in royalty. So it's important to note that this idea of, there's two different types of rights. There's your song copyright and your master copyright. Your song copyright is the rights that are vested in the music and the lyrics, the, the underlying copyright, the song itself. And, you know, sitting here in the studio today, there are lots of different variations and recordings of songs. Not every song that is going through a mastering process has to be classed as a master. Your voice note, even though it could be of pretty poor quality, in itself is a master. How you monetize it is anyone's guess. But I mean, it's very easy for a Taylor Swift to put up a voice note that's a minute and a half long on Spotify and get a lot of people listening to it versus me saying, I'm going to read out the alphabet on my voice note <laughs> and have no one listening to it. So some people can do it very well from an unmastered point of view, but mastering is not necessarily the process that gives you a master copyright. Because we can see that like an artist released an album, their label pays for that recording. Someone goes into a BBC Live Lounge session and then does a cover. That's a different recording of that song. So different people own different masters. And it's really important. I just find to all my students when I'm talking to them, do you know what you contributed to in the writing session, the recording session? Did you pay for the recording? Did you play double bass? Did you perform backing vocals? Did you write the song? Um, because every time you're involved in some process of creation, you may be entitled to a share of income. Now, it sounds like I'm like gold digging. It sounds like I'm panning for gold and telling everyone this is going to be amazing. But I do find those people who are really prolific, they're involved in so much creativity. They're getting minor shares or major shares in a number of different songs. And that's the kind of financial stability and viability of being an artist nowadays. It's trying to find ways to make everything work financially. That's what it is. Just to clarify, do you mind explaining the difference between composition and master? Yeah. So, The composition itself is the music and the lyrics, the melody and the lyrics that are the basis of the song itself. There are a number of songs out there that are completely instrumental, no lyrics feature whatsoever. But when we look at the melody and we look at the lyrics, we have to ascribe that someone was involved in that creation. And sometimes quantifying that is a pretty sore point. I mean, if you put four people in a room and you say to them, write a song, maybe only two of the people really are involved in the songwriting. But those other two people might put their hands up and say, hey, what's my share? And you were like, well, you were on your phone, on the couch, doing nothing. But they might say, well, actually, for the sake of keeping the band together, a la U2 or Coldplay, they divide everything equally. They just don't want the grief or they don't want any, anything coming up afterwards. So some people are very generous with their share splits. Other people like to really quantify. I'm talking like, I'm due 14.26% of this song. And you're like, how did you get to that figure? Well, I was involved in writing the pre-chorus and I did some of the hook and I've sat down with my calculator and I've decided that I'm due 14.26%. I think for the most part, the way that a lot of songs and ownership get quantified on the song copyright is by just having very real conversations before the session starts about trying to go in there to create something. The, the game is not to keep your eye on your phone and try to identify, well, I had 
four session. I had four um, tracks on this session. So therefore, I'm going to divide by the total number of session files. Quantifying is a really hard thing. So the song copyright is about making sure that whoever was involved in the music and the lyrics is identified because they've manifested that song. And then because they own that, they're entitled to certain royalties. The master side is essentially the sound recording itself that's, you know, owned by someone. If your uncle com- comes in and your uncle's very rich and he decides to pay for your EP, essentially at the base level, your uncle owns that sound recording. And by owning that sound recording, he will enjoy any sort of financial gain to be made from sales of that recording, public performance of that recording, all these things. Now, if your uncle's a very nice uncle, and I hope he is, he might decide to gift you the ownership of that material because part of the present was not to own the master, but was to actually give you access to studios and give you, you know, this recording as a present. And then that's your ownership to enjoy afterwards. So we do have conversations a lot in classes. I work a lot with songwriters and we have conversations about the tough experiences they've had with producers being very pushy, um, co-writers in a band or even just one-off writing sessions where they've had a really bad experience mm-hmm. and trying to break through that and to see like, what have you learned from that? What are you not? What mistakes are you not going to make again when it comes to giving out shares or being too protective about a song and really more so focusing on growing your repertoire and growing your catalogue? So what kind of tips would you give them in that case? I just say like sometimes it's really hard. Like I don't want to like poo-poo on producers. It's it's not it's not my job to do that. But I know there are some people out there, producers, co-writers, um, artists that can be really grabby when it comes to rights. Like if an artist had no involvement in writing a song, but yet they're looking for a share on songwriting royalties, you know, they might say, well, that's the cost of entry of working with me. But other people um, really just need to understand their value. What was my input into the recording of this song? What was my input into the writing of this song? My skill and labour went towards creating this. And I have to recognise that if I'm seen as the owner or co-owner, that means that I know that, you know, I've had some involvement and I can potentially in the future see that this might get cut by another artist. It might get cut by one of my artistic projects. Um, It could be synced or married, as I said, onto film, TV, video games, advertising. And I can see a financial windfall from that. Like, you know, I think everyone likes creating music and I don't want to make it so businessy that like people fall out of love with the idea of creation. But like writing songs, the cathartic experience of like expressing yourself is really important. Being able to look at the work that you create and say, wow, that might work really well in a film score. That could work really well in a, an upbeat kind of nasty gal advert or that could work really well on a video game that has a kind of a, a dynamic audio source that can move from different you know, scene to scene. And knowing that there is a potential way for you to earn income from that, that's really important. So those pushy people who are trying to grab for percentages of ownership of the master recording or songwriting, it's just about knowing that that potentially these royalties are your pension. They're your long tail income over the course of the your life and potentially the next 70 years after your death, there is a, a duration that copyright lasts for and your family, your future could see those royalties. And it's just really important to, to make those calls early on. Like nobody should be puffing up their chest and saying, I'm not going to share this with you or trying to like create bad vibes or or get a name for themselves as being someone who's particularly bullshy when it comes to um, ownership shares. But really having, sitting down and having fair and frank conversations with producers. And that's why, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to students, I'm talking to them about work for hire agreements. And like understanding what it means when you're bringing a producer into the session. Is it just that they're looking after the arrangement, the recording, the mixing, or are they coming in creatively? Because if they are coming in creatively, they are entitled to some sort of share on the publishing and the song copyright. Um, 
depending on the deal you do with a producer, you may cut them in for a percentage of future income. And, and it's all down to the type of deal that you sign. So I do often find a lot of the students that I deal with, you know, they've, they've made the mistakes initially and then they're coming to me kind of saying, what, what should I do in the future? And that's fine. We can say, look, you've learned from that. That's, it's, a, it's a learning experience. You know, it's great that I'm able to be in college and be able to work with these students over two, like one year part time, four years full time and, and help them kind of understand that like, well, we won't make that mistake again. Will we? we'll, we'll move on from this. Absolutely. I got so many questions coming from that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is, does it seem to be normal for people to have a contract they sign or is mainly like a conversations via emails? Um, the other question is also, then where do artists register those rights and where do they need to log in all the information? And is there a difference between a self-released artist versus someone who's signed? Is it then the label who's, you know, taking care of all that? Yeah, so for the first part, that idea of like documentation and trying to formalize the relationship between a producer, engineer, songwriter, artist. Um, most of the time, <clears throat> when artists are first involved with producers, um, normally it's more of a, I'll reach out, we'll do an email, a couple of chains back and forth, we'll book a session, we'll go in. And the conversations are not about where the rights are vested and the nature of where the rights are going to go and, you know, the type of work that's going to happen. I find it's normally after that when someone's been burned that they then want to go for something more formal. Now, it's very simple to reach out to a producer and saying, I'm coming into this session and I've got the melody written of the song. I have the lyrics. I'm coming in, I'm literally looking to record, but I do need help with the arrangement. And, you know, some producers would say, well, what I add is the special sauce. I add the the secret spices, you know, the 27 blends of herbs and spices, KFC, you know, <laughs> that's what I do. I bring that to the session. And I do agree that sometimes that is the case where they should be involved because they've taken what is essentially a voice note recording or a very basic bedroom recording. And they've done something to it that's made it sound amazing sonically. And sometimes that's the creativity. But there are other times when there is a bit of a land grab that goes on. And I find that... It is good sometimes to actually not so much start plonking documents in front of producers, but be very clear, have an email chain at the very least about what the expectations are going into the session. Um, but I find that unless you're educated in those kind of things, it's very easy to walk into a kind of a, a bear trap. I don't want to do this like a cautionary tale. I just want to say that it is important sometimes. Producers aren't all boogeymen. I'm not at all. <laughs> the idea is that, you know, everyone's trying to make a living. And if you get a producer who loves your music, it's going to be such a fantastic combo um, to work with someone who's really excited to be in the room, who's trying to get the most out of you creatively and you form a bond. And that's amazing. But there are unfortunately some bad faith players out there who will kind of tarnish the name of producers and I just find with songwriters, once they've been burned once, then they get very savvy and copped on and they come to people like myself or even yourself potentially saying, hey, I've gone through this situation. Could you give me some advice? Mm -hmm. um, second question was around registrations. So the idea with ownership is that copyright in Ireland doesn't necessarily need to be registered with any one body. The idea is that you would retain the proof as much proof as possible. So those handwritten lyrics, early demos, voice notes, the master recording itself, the session files, that's all proof to show when you did this stuff. A lot of this stuff can be timestamped. You kind of have to pull that stuff out in court if you're ever accused. So having as much information collected as possible at the time of creation to show that it precedes any sort of other person claiming that they wrote it first. Because that's really what scares a lot of students when I start talking to them about copyright infringement. When I start asking students, okay, you're releasing a song. Where did the lyrics come from? Are they all original? Uh, where did the melody come from? Is that original? 
are there any unlicensed samples in here? And then they start hyperventilating because it seems like <laughs> it's a cross-examination and I'm shining the lamp in their eyes and they're all getting confused now. The reason we, we ask those questions is because what we don't want is you go into the very real costs of like recording. So the idea of spending time writing a song, then going and renting a studio, hiring a producer, bringing in session musicians, going through a mix down, um, getting it mastered, uh, starting some promotional campaign for this release, getting it up there, spending money on a video, putting it out, and then getting a takedown notice the following day because you've got an unlicensed or uncleared sample in it. Uh, or you use some melody or lyric from somewhere else, whether it's unknown or otherwise. And nobody wants that. So the whole idea is that, you know, a bit of education can go a long way in kind of doing a checklist before you do that. But in terms of registering your copyright, you don't necessarily need to register your copyright with every, anyone. But what you should be doing is if you've written a song, you should be registering that song with a performing rights organization. For example, I worked in IMRO. They are the Irish PRO. They look after performing rights for songwriters and music publishers. And really, it doesn't cost anything to join. It's zero euro uh, to join. All you got to do is contact them, give them some information about yourself, give them your bank details. It's the bank detail, the bank uh, that the money is going to be paid into for the royalties or at least your share of the song. And then you got to register your songs with them as often as they come up. What they're looking for is to identify here's 100% of the pie of the song. Can you show me how it's split between you and any other songwriters? Now, obviously, in some cases, you know, Hosier, Take Me to Church is 100% written by Hosier. But um, in some cases, there's other songs that are written three ways, four ways. And that quantification of ownership is really important because not only does it define your ownership, but it defines your revenue share going forward. You know, some people call it pennies from heaven. Other people, if they're very prolific and they're involved in a song that's got a lot of potential for commercial success, it can be enough to buy a house, you know, a couple of times a year. So it's, it's the idea is that, and I'm very aware of this because in classes you're trying to be aspirational. I don't want to bamboozle students and say it's worth millions and millions and millions. No, sometimes a play on a, a local radio station could be worth one cent per minute. But there's other times where we say, take, for example, BBC Radio 2 in the UK, where it could be worth something like 26 euro per minute. And if you've got a three and a half minute song, or three minute song, that's roughly just shy of like a hundred pounds per play. You start getting heavy rotation in the UK. You're not just getting played on BBC Radio 2. You're getting played on all the other stations and they've all got their own rates. But even then, that's just one territory. If this is a, a song that starts getting a lot of play in different territories, they've all got their own rates as well. So this is why these this idea of pennies from heaven can grow very quickly to a sustainable, viable career. Now, that's the song and the song should be registered with IMRO. But if you are a person who paid for the recording, let's say a record label or even a self-releasing artist, that recording that you paid for, that master copyright that you own, that should be registered in Ireland with PPI, Phonographic Performance Ireland. And what they do is any time that your recording of that song, so the recording itself, is played on radio or TV, it generates a royalty as well. And it generates it in a lot of different territories. Traditional radio in the US, it doesn't pay out at the minute. They, they didn't sign something called the Rome Convention, so they don't pay that out. But um, a lot of artists, self-releasing artists and labels make their money from neighbouring rights, which essentially is when the master recording gets publicly performed on radio and TV. The third type that's really important is performer royalties. So any person who was involved in a recording and was laying down vocals, guitar, bass, drums, backing vocals, a triangle, a glockenspiel, whatever it is, they can register their interest in the recording with an organisation here in Ireland called RAP, R-A-A-P, Recorded Actors, Authors and Performers. And every time that recording is performed 
on radio or TV, they get a performer royalty. So here's the thing, right? You could be a songwriter who wrote the song, who paid for the recording and performed on the recording. There's three different income streams there that come from even one radio play. So it's important to note that every time you do something in a session, you're writing a song, you're recording, you're performing, just make a note of it because there may be some income that comes from that. I didn't know about rap. I'm just discovering yeah. that today. Thank you so much. Sweet. <laughs> and sometimes some producers are involved in keys or programming. And if you're involved in that creative aspect, you should be registering your interest because this is, as I said, long tail pension income, you know, and this mm-hmm. is why so many producers try to get publishing credits because maybe they're involved creatively with the song, but they're also potentially performing something on the song. And that's, you can register your interest. You're not detracting from anything. You're, you're getting what's yours. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you for the input. 200 more questions and we're done. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> can you uh, remind us the difference between performance royalties and mechanical royalties? Yeah. So in IMRO, I worked with a lot of songwriters and publishers and we, we dealt with public performance royalties. So as I said, this is getting played on the radio, getting your music used in the background of a TV show, uh, getting your music played live, streamed, getting used in a film and being performed in a cinema. These were all performance royalties. But songwriters are also due to another type of royalty and it's a royalty that a lot of them don't know about. It's called a mechanical royalty. And essentially what it is, is every time a song is reproduced onto a format, it's due a royalty. So that song is being reproduced onto tape, CD, vinyl, uh, an MP3 or even a stream. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't know In a lot of territories, when you get paid for your streaming income as a songwriter, if you own the master and you own the song, so if you own the, you wrote the song, you paid for the recording, all your money that's going to be coming from the master recording is going to be coming through your distributor. So CD Baby, TuneCore, AWOL, Ditto, DistroKid, they're all the ways that you get your music up onto Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, Deezer, etc. And they'll pay your, your master kind of royalties from streaming. But on the song side, Imro are going to pay you 50% of the income, which is public performance royalties. And the other half of your income is going to come from an organization called MCPSI. It's just full of letters today. (laughs) The Mechanical Copyright Protection Society of Ireland. So these mechanical royalties come from a reproduction of the song onto a platform like Spotify. Spotify has to host music in order for people to be able to play those songs whenever they want to. They have to host the music so that if someone wants to make an offline playlist they can do so and listen offline. So they're making kind of mechanical reproductions. And what happens is a lot of people don't realise if they're not registered with MCPSI, they're really only collecting half of the songwriting income. Mm. Now, it does cost money to join MCPSI. I think it's something like 120. Sorry if anyone from MCPSI is listening, but um, I think it's about 120 per per writer and and it might be slightly more. It might be the exact same for, for publishers. But it is an important income stream. It used to be a very important income stream. Back when... Acts like the Eagles would be selling millions and millions and millions of copies. I think it was like 12.78 million copies of like the Eagles. One of the Eagles albums was sold. And every time a song was reproduced onto that format, it generated a royalty. And for songwriters, that's where a lot of money used to be made. Now that we're format shifting we're moving away from cassette tape, CD, you know, vinyl for the most part, and we're moving more towards an access streaming model. It's important that when songwriters are kind of discussing royalty inequality or any sort of perceived royalty inequality that they recognise that they're potentially only earning half of the money and they're not registered with the correct collection society to collect those royalties. So, you know, I would say that education is really important. There still are questions being asked about streaming. Uh, There was a conversation today in the DCMS Select Committee on 
the uh, discussion that was had previously on the major labels involvement with streaming and streaming income and equality I have to watch it when I get home I'm just interested in keeping up with it to see you know there are certain campaigns like Broken Record that are trying to shine a light on how the music industry can become better and how we can become more transparent and how we can become more equitable um, how we can be more fair and, and essentially survive as an industry Perfect. Uh, we'll definitely talk about the streaming model. Um, I'm really interested to have your uh, input on that. Before I forget, which question am I going to start with? Uh, you mentioned, you know, publisher, and I'm always like, um, wh- what's the exact definition of a publisher? And the second question, what are the equivalent in Europe slash UK, US of Imro, PPI and RAP and in that case, do artists have to register in those different organisations to collect the royalties in different territories? Okay, so the first one, a music publisher. Music publishing is hundreds of years old. It's about 600 years old. So it all started with the idea of book publishers moving into created, creating printed sheet music and then selling that sheet music. So this idea of the word publisher comes from that same idea of a publisher for books. But over the years, publishing has changed. Over the years, songs have been now been used in any crazy array of mediums. So it's the idea of music in sync. So music with, as I said before, film, TV, video games, advertising. Uh, it's the idea of developing songwriters. So really, publishers sometimes can be classed as song managers. They're the ones that look at the underlying composition, the thing that's been created, and try to figure out a way to get this song into as many ears as possible. Try and proliferate and grow this song and the songs might have been released 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. So it's about growing the song and trying to keep the song alive and, and used in different novel ways. Those sort of things are very important now where we're seeing platforms like TikTok that are you know, bringing songs, not back from the dead, but essentially songs that might be classed as catalogue material. And no better example than like, you know, even with t- outside of TikTok, like Kate Bush featuring on Stranger Things and how that can all of a sudden bring a song from the 80s uh, back into the public forum and into a lot of new listeners, younger listeners, playlists. And it's an amazing opportunity to try and work with catalogue, new songwriters, artists. So it is song management, it's song development, the same way that record labels have A&R scouts that are out trying to find artists. Music publishers have A&R scouts that are out trying to find really interesting lyrics, melodies, songwriters that they can work with, they can collaborate with, with their existing roster. They're trying to find ways of getting, as I said, the music into all those media formats. Uh, And they're trying to get collaboration happening. They're trying to get songwriters to go to writing camps in like Malmo and LA and Nashville and London, trying to, you know, get the most out of them, where they're most conducive. I say to students all the time, if you're, if you find that, you know, the best type of writing for you happens when you're in a a plush recording studio, that's where you should be, if at all possible. But at the same time, if you find that when you're sitting on the top deck of the 37 going out to Blanchardstown in Ireland here and you're watching a couple having a fight at the bus stop, that could be all the material you need to write one of the best songs in the world. So it's about <laughs> trying to trying to find where is my most conducive environment for creativity and songwriting. It doesn't have to be a really, really expensive studio. It may very much help, but it also could be some a place that you need to see things playing out in real time. You need to see scenarios. You need to have discussions, walk with other co-writers, collaborate in order for the juices to flow. Second question was about collection societies. Um, I've got a photographic memory. So if you become a member of IMRO in Ireland, you can become a member of IMRO for the world. You do not need to join 
PRS for music in the UK. You don't need to join ASCAP or BMI in the US. You don't need to join JazzRack in Japan, Game in Germany. You know, you don't need to join every single collection society. You could decide you want to join a collection society in your local home territory. One, because they probably speak your native language, but they can also enter into what are called reciprocal agreements with the other collection societies. And reciprocity essentially is the idea of, will you do this for me? And if you do that for me, I'll do this for you. So the idea is that in Ireland, say for myself and yourself, I am an artist and I want to get my music played in France. And all of a sudden, my songs start getting played on the radio in France. What happens is the French collection society that looks after songwriters and publishers called SASM, who was in fact the first collection society, they will collect that income and they will pass it over to IMRO, which is my collection society. Mm -hmm. But what they expect is that IMRO look after licensing their music in our territory, in Ireland, mm. and then they will collect the money and pass it over to France. And this chain of money is flowing all around the world all the time. That was my job in, in, in international, to try and track the flow of income, to try and find our members' use, music being used in film and TV. Um, it was just a really exciting kind of exploratory, data-driven, fun kind of role, you know, meeting all these other people that are doing your job in other countries and, and learning how there are differences that happen in certain territories. So, for example, here in Ireland, Irish songwriters uh, can enjoy that if their music is used in a film, in film theatres, you are getting cinema royalties as the songwriter. It's not the case in the US. They actually have exempted that from royalties. So you could be in a massive film, a Marvel film, big blockbuster, billion dollar budget. And unfortunately, there's no royalties that come from cinema usage in the US. So there are little quirks of copyright in different territories mm -hmm. because they all operate with different copyright laws. But you're saying basically the artists shouldn't really worry about it. They're going to collect whatever royalties yeah, coming from different countries. The main thing is making sure you register your songs. For example, Imro can't collect your income unless you, they know the name of the song, who the co-writers are and what your share is. So you have to make sure that as you're writing songs and creating songs, the songs don't need to be recorded or mastered because hmm. essentially those songs can be performed live and that generates royalties. So... Even if you're writing songs, going out, testing it and doing the live circuit for a little bit, then deciding, am I going to spend some money going to a studio and recording? You can register that song with Imro. And then if it's performed anywhere in the world, the collection society in that territory has it on file and can go, yeah, that was the performance. So a lot of people don't know that if you if your song is played at an open mic night and someone submits that set list, you are due a live performance royalty. Mm. And there's a very big difference between obviously an open mic night uh, in Dublin somewhere and then the three arena or an arena, 13,000 capac 13, capacity or even an 80,000 capacity stadium venue. And there's a huge diverse array of payments for that. And it can be worth a lot of money. I know some songwriters who enjoy earning money from like a very, very big artist every time their song gets played in like stadium and arena tours and they don't have to lift a finger. They've, their job was writing that song and then they can sit back and, you know, money can flow in every time that artist performs it live. And it's not, it's not a small amount of money, you know, mm. it can be quite big. So it's really important that um, you recognise that registering the songs is pretty much your job as the songwriter. But if you have a music publisher, it's the publisher's job to collect that information from you. And that's why a lot of people seek labels and publishers. They want to kind of have someone else take care of the registration business. They just want to make sure that they're getting paid properly and they're being developed as creators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's better to not have too, too many hats <laughs> and just focus on the creative Admin side. is tough. Yeah. For sure. And what about in terms of the, um, when you were mentioning the uh, radio plays, who determines how much people are getting in terms of, you know, sync, radio play? Is it different per country? Is it different per service, per company? There are lots and lots of different rates. 
One of the nice things about being a songwriter in Ireland is that Imro do post up after every distribution, the actual values per minute that you can get paid. PRS for Music do it in the UK, but they only do it to their members. So it's not necessarily publicly visible, but it is visible if you're a member of PRS. I say to a lot of songwriters, what you should be doing is trying to grow your song in as many ways as possible. I wouldn't go just chasing the biggest paying radio stations. and the Like obviously financially, it, uh, it does help. But if you're just trying to aim for the biggest stations, it's not necessarily going to help you grow your regional radio fan base and your local radio fan base and your community radio fan base. So a lot of this data is not necessarily publicly visible, but thankfully in, for the Republic of Ireland, it is visible via IMRO. So it is it is possible to see, like, if I'm played on this TV station, how much do I get paid per minute? If I'm played on this radio station, how much do I get paid per minute? And if my music is used in an advert, I can get paid a different royalty rate per minute, but most ads are normally kind of 30, 40 seconds long. So it's a pro rata kind of approach. But every territory has its own version of this. There is not like a single rate. And the reason being is because if I was to pick Castlebar Community Radio, it's a small community radio station, very, very little ad income, and more than likely actually will not have a royalty rate at all. But at the same time, there are some radio stations, local radio stations that might have one cent a minute because they have such little advertising revenue. But the big difference is the BBCs that are kind of government state sponsored platforms and then platforms like RTE, which are subsidised by TV licence income, advertising revenue, they have much higher rates. So the idea is trying to build your audience, getting on the biggest platforms if possible, knowing that a platform has the biggest rates does not necessarily mean that you're all of a sudden going to be able to pitch and your song to be heard or your track to be played on this radio station or TV station. It is important to build media contacts. So every territory has its own. You can reach out to you, the membership or a team or the distribution team in any collection society and ask the question, is there any way I could get an idea of what my, my rates are? Some of them do have them and they will provide them if requested, but others don't necessarily make it publicly available. I think what's really important as well is that if you're a member of a collection society and for some reason you've forgotten to register a song, for example, um, and all of a sudden that song has gotten radio play, what happens is the royalties for that song will go into suspense. So it will sit waiting for potentially two, three years, and you are able to go into essentially a Google search engine and search the name of your song or your performer information, and you can actually claim that back. So it doesn't just get rid of it. It sits there kind of in suspense or escrow waiting for you to claim it. And, you know, I've helped people in the past collect money where they haven't registered a song, they've incorrectly registered a song, they misspelled a song title, and the IMRO matching engine can't just magically do it. It has to make sure that it's perfect. So I help a lot of people with that, um, just claiming back, whether it's like a small 20 euro payment or whether it's like 5,000 euro of like unclaimed cinema advertising income, making sure they get paid what they're meant to get paid. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and what happens in the touring world, playing abroad, for example, and obviously the question of, the, you know, the V word, <laughs> what happens with Brexit? And also in terms of merch, does the money go straight to the artists? Okay, well, let's let's look at the idea of touring first of all. Obviously, the music industry has three main revenue pillars. It's going to be the recorded music industry, the music publishing industry, so recordings and songs. But then the third third pillar is going to be the live sector, where tickets are sold. Um, people love gigs. They love feeling the sub hit their chest. They love being part of a crowd and feeling like they're part of something bigger. Everything's moving like one big super organism. And they love seeing their acts perform live. It's an experience. It's experiential. For artists right now, 
one of the biggest considerations when it comes to touring is going to be the B word, which is Brexit, because this idea of, of the UK exiting from the European Union suited the ideology of certain people, obviously, but I know the UK music industry were extremely against it. They did not see a sunlit upland where that was going to be a good idea. The thing that's happening now is that entering and exiting the UK, there still are a number of question marks. There still are going to be people that are standing at outposts, waving you in and out of countries, on and off of ferries, who maybe are not 100% aware of what's happening. And we're slowly seeing, because of, especially because of COVID, where we weren't able to immediately implement changes, we were kind of stuck in this weird limbo where, you know, we are now slowly, even still, teasing out the idea of what travel looks like, what's your you know, reason for traveling, uh, looking at the idea of things like carnets and having to weigh equipment on the way in and out of territories, the idea of, you know, in some places like withholding tax and trying to figure out what money is going to be held back or what do we need to pay aside. And touring is, is going to be a massive impact. And the reason that those things are now considerations is a lot of artists that are trying to maybe tour in Ireland are saying, okay, well, what if we do a European tour? And then we say, okay, what's it going to cost us to go into the UK? You know, we're not connected necessarily by a land bridge, but logistically it makes a lot of sense for US artists to start their European tours in Ireland and then to move to the UK and then down to France and everywhere else. So for a lot of artists that are doing European tours, if they say, well, hang on a second now, the UK is looking a bit expensive for us to do this. What if we decide to forego the UK and Ireland as part of the tour and instead just decide to focus on mainland, the continent of Europe. And the thing with that is that that's impacting, that's, that's impacting and is going to impact festival lineups. It's going to impact tours that we see. I think that there is an agreement in place between the UK and Ireland right now in terms of mm -hmm. the common travel areas. Yeah. So it's not as, it's not as um, negative for Ireland and UK. It's more so for artists outside of those territories that are looking to kind of come mm -hmm. in. And as you said, we're, we're still at a very nascent stage with what, Bre what else Brexit's going to throw up because of certain types of deals that still need to be negotiated between territories. So I don't want to make it all do, I don't want to make it all doom and gloom. Obviously, there has to be some kind of um, positive spin out of this. But I do think that what we're seeing right now in terms of what our Brexit dividends are going to be is potentially having more companies setting up in Ireland. Like, for example, Cobalt have set up their tech offices in Galway. Spotify have set up a trust and safety office in Dublin. TikTok have set up their European kind of headquarters or one of their headquarters here in Ireland and are employing lots and lots of people. And they're looking now to potentially get into a streaming service and offer a new streaming service. So there are there is potential for more and more jobs and, and music happening in Ireland and not just being focused in the UK. But like our Brexit dividends, you know, I think that pales in comparison of kind of wishing it never happened in the mm -hmm. first place because there still is a lot of things to be ironed out. Mm -hmm. um, your second question was regarding, oh my God, I forgot, actually forgotten. I it. was just um, talking about merch. So yes. when, when people sell merch, if they're abroad, uh, what happens? So initially when a band is going to go on tour, any sort of show, their consideration is what exactly am I selling? I'm selling an experience, but also do we have any potential physical product that we could sell at this event and maybe let fans take home? What if it's a case where one of the best memories a, a person could have is going to see their favourite band and then going down to the merch stand and having the band there signing merch, talking to them for a minute? That really adds that extra layer of like experience to, to that event. When a band is thinking about 
creating merch. Merch now has a range of things. It used to be just kind of t-shirts, but now we're looking at CDs, vinyl, tea cozies, whatever it's going to be, bottle openers, everything, lighters. It's about trying to find merch and identify merch that fits in line with the band. There's nothing more contrived than trying to create material and merch that has nothing to do with the band whatsoever just because a label or someone else wants it. So you've got to be kind of smart when it comes to creating merch because your fan base might think of you a certain way and then when you're trying to create merch that isn't necessarily in your brand it's a tough sell when a band or even a label uh, want to subsidize the cost of merch there is always the question about what the return on investment is going to be are we going to sell all of this or is this going to end up upstairs in mammy's attic for the rest of you know the tour and potentially for the rest of forever you have to be cute and make sure that you're sitting down and identifying what your your audience or fan base, the numbers wise, what that is. And we're making sure I'm not I'm not bringing too much merch because if I'm doing like an eight day tour of the US and I know I'm playing in, you know, 200 cap venues and I'm going to do eight shows, that's 1600. Am I going to end up bringing 3000 units of something where I'm, there's no way in hell I'm going to sell that? Um, so what has to happen is I have to have a sit down and identify things like lead times for manufacture of the merch. Like nothing worse than missing your merch run window, then going on tour, having a lot of merch that you can't sell because you're, it's not with you. And then having to come back and try and figure, figure out some other way of trying to sell that merch. You have to understand that there is going to be potentially import taxes, uh, potentially some sort of withholding tax that might have to be paid on any sales that take place in a foreign territory. If you're going into a territory that has a really poor exchange rate with your territory, you're losing out then because you're selling it for less than it was potentially made for. There are lots and lots of considerations uh, when it comes to trying to figure out what's the right amount of merch to bring. And I think that if you are an artist that is considering merch, it's also that merch is now much bigger. So this idea of like making T-shirts, making vinyl and CDs, there's a huge outlay. Like there's, there's like a year run on vinyl right now. Like if you want to get vinyl manufactured, you're going to have to wait a year. So thinking that you're going to get 600 copies or 500 copies of your vinyl done in, in red, you know, it's not going to happen for the next tour. You have to do that planning in advance. And I do know a few Irish artists that unfortunately had made, you know, merch and vinyl kind of manufacturing pressing runs and were way too delayed, way past the release date. So they were able to obviously release digitally, potentially get some CDs manufactured, but the vinyl run that people had pre-ordered, it was just kind of sitting waiting and then they got it much later. Now, the nice thing with pre-orders is obviously you're manufacturing vinyl on a request basis. So if you know that 300 people are pre-ordering, you can manufacture 300, they're already sold. But doing a thing where you think that 300 people will buy it and then only 17 buy it, you're like, wow, that was a huge cost. And as I said before, that's sitting upstairs in your parents' attic and <laughs> uh, not being sold. Thanks for the explanation. That makes um, total sense. And when it comes to collecting the money generated by merch or even from touring, everything, do you, you think it's smarter for artists to declare themselves as, as self-employed or start a kind of business, especially when it's like a band with several members, who collects the, the money? It's a good question. Um, sometimes the band doesn't even know. The thing is, when a person is starting out, there's a certain threshold of income that you can earn as a sole trader. So first of all, in Ireland, you've got to register uh, with revenue as a sole trader. And if you earn something like more than €5,000 in income outside of your PAYE income, you know, you've got to start paying tax on that. Now, when a band comes together, the first thing I try to get I recommend a band does is create something called an inter-band agreement. Uh, that way you identify who owns what. We all collectively put in towards the logo 
and the design. So who owns that trademark? Who owns that? If we want to manufacture merch going forward and I have a 25% share in paying for that, even if I leave the band, am I entitled to 25% of merch sales going forward? So these conversations need to happen. What if someone leaves the band? Can they go and call themselves you know, like UB40, can they go and call themselves UB40 or UB4 or, you know, UB and have that where there's a kind of a nod and a wink towards it, but I'm not actually the right band. Um, when four people or three people come together, the default position for those, instead of setting up as a sole trader, might be to form what's called a partnership in Ireland. And unfortunately, the, the Partnership Act in Ireland is quite a, a decrepit act. It's It's quite formal and strict. And that's why I always advise that if you create a, a, a an interband agreement before uh, becoming a partnership, it can supersede the Partnership Act, which is quite harsh in some places. The next step is going to be that if you start generating quite a lot of income as a partnership, and I know a number of bands that have set up as a partnership just right now until they earn a certain threshold of income. But when you breach that level of uh, threshold, and I mean that positively, when you when you get over that hurdle, some bands might say, or some accountants might say €250,000 of income is enough to then say, well, why don't we think about setting up a limited company? Because then what we have to do is uh, we can pay corporation tax, we can set up as a business, we can offset all these costs again against income. And essentially, we can set you all up as directors of the company and um, it just makes some sense financially. For example, um, there are some bands that set up as a company. And what happens if the lead singer of the band decides, you know, hello, I'm here in Cornwall playing a gig. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to run out on the stage. and I'm going to jump into the crowd. And what I do is I jump out in the crowd and I stick my heel into the face of an audience member. And that audience member could sue me personally for damages. But what can happen either is that the company ends up getting sued and that the people involved don't get personally held liable. It's actually the company. And if the company is sued... Um, that means that if the company has money, they can use it to pay damages versus that one person potentially getting like an assault charge or other stuff. Now, I'm not saying that that will still potentially happen, but it's important to note that there are certain things you can enjoy as a limited company versus a partnership and a sole trader. And it's all about trying to identify sitting down with your lawyer and your accountant. to When these thresholds happen, when you cross that horizon, there are new opportunities in order to try and save money in the future. Because when you really start making money, that's when everyone's got their hand out looking for their cut, their share. That includes the revenue, that includes withholding tax, global income, um, exchange rates, bank charges, all these things will happen. And you want a really good team around you to make sure they can mitigate those costs. Because at the end of the day, everyone is due a living. And I, I think about this all the time when I think about acts like Ed Sheeran that have like, they must have a thousand, like he must have a thousand people working underneath them when it comes to live shows, label, publishing, management and PR. And like they rely on him for income. Like there's a pressure there, I would say, for Ed to deliver on like, you know, making sure these people get paid. There's livelihoods, people who rely on him doing well in order for them to have a job. And so there is a lot of pressure on, you know, artists to try and be the most formal they can make sure all their business affairs are above order, making sure they're paying tax where they have to. And that's why, like, when a lot of artists think, I don't want to think about that, that's all above my head. I just want to write music. I want to record, perform. I'm a, I'm a creator, I'm an artist. You build a team around you that are supportive, not parasitic. You build a team around you that want to be there, nurture and work with you. Like, formal, strategic partnerships. You don't want a manager who treats you as though they own you. You don't want a label who bosses you around. You want to think of them as your partners because you are the person who 
performs or writes that music and you really add value to their lives. Yeah. Go artists, go. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's probably talking about rights for artists. I would love to have your input um, because of things you said earlier and you have such a broad view of in terms of, of numbers. What are the biggest sources of income for artists nowadays? Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier about this idea of the democratization of music. It's no longer a case where you need to be signed to a major label in order to make it as an artist. But for a lot of artists, they don't seem to understand the income streams. They understand the costs. They know it costs money to go and record in a studio. They know it costs to get a producer. They know it costs to buy equipment, outboard gear if they want to do bedroom recording, all that sort of stuff. And when it comes to the income, they're not so au fait with that. So an artist nowadays the best thing you can do is if you're involved in the writing of the song, I said this before, to, to look to register with Imro and understand that every time your song is performed publicly, you will get royalties. To register your recordings with PPI, to register your performances on recordings with rap. And remember, Imro, PPI, rap, they all have reciprocal agreements. So you just need to join your societies in your home territory and all that money will flow from all around the world whenever it's performed publicly. You may need to join MCPSI to make sure you collect mechanical royalties every time your song is reproduced onto any physical or digital platforms. You can make income from ticket sales, whether it's like, you know, I I would advise like sometimes people think, oh, there's no point in doing open mics. I'm not going to make any money. I'm like, no, that's where you hone your craft. That's where you look at your stage craft, trying to do stripped back sets, trying to add something different, try out new material. Because when you do go to play those bigger shows and you either rent a venue yourself and put out that outlay of income, or you get picked up by a promoter and they're going to do some of this stuff for you. You want to give the people a good show. You want to make them come back. You want to bring them with you from your 100 cap venue or your small at loan 50 cap venue all the way up to your three arenas and your Crow Parks where you're doing 13,000 to 80,000 and they want to come with you the whole way. As well as that then, obviously we mentioned the idea of merch sales and if you have the outlay to, ge- to generate some merch, I would say, you know, obviously manufacture it and just do some reading into your audience like understand the type of merch you've you know, they like to buy you know what age group are they are they going to buy something that they don't normally use are they going to try and buy something to support you and go down to the merch stand like you will sell more merch than ever if you're there signing merch shaking hands kissing babies whatever it's going to be do your selling <laughs> there um it's also a case where um a lot of artists nowadays are looking at sync They're looking at trying to get music into film, TV, video games, advertising. And that means trying to build connections with music supervisors. People that are tasked with the idea of sourcing music for particular productions and clearing the licensing and licensing and clearing the usage of that music in that production. Some of these budgets are tiny. There's very little money in sync uh, for some brands because they're very, very small. They're almost like something that exists only in one county in Ireland. But there's obviously global brands as well and they can have much higher sync budgets for campaigns. You know, people talk sometimes about the idea of like your Super Super Bowl halftime show. Those ads that are shown during that, they have huge outlays for really expensive ads because most people in America that follow American football are watching this. And that's why a lot of money is spent. So you, if you're able to get your music into a big brand advert that's running not just a single campaign on TV, but potentially three campaigns in a row with your music being used in different ways across radio, across TV, cinema advertising, online. It can be a real money spinner. And I know that a lot of people maybe sometimes eschew the idea of sync. They think you're selling out. You know, why would I want my music on a pedigree chum ad? That's not really, that's not me. I'm punk AF. 
And if I want to do that, that's, if, if you want to do that, that's fine. There is going to be a way of reaching out and identifying who works on these campaigns. So Sync, a lot of people think Sync is the holy grail. It's a, it's a growing business, but at the same time, ads right now, I mean, if I'm on YouTube and I'm watching something or I want to watch something and I'm seeing ad one of two, it's like, watch this for 20 seconds. You're like, okay, tapping your foot. And then it goes on to the next ad and it's like, skip after five seconds and you're fit to, you're fit to scream because we're in this attention economy. We're in an economy right now, and this is related to an artist and how they make money. We're in an, we're in an economy right now where skip rates on streaming services could be three seconds. You're getting three, you're giving the public three seconds. They need to hear the chorus immediately for them to understand if they're going to listen to this song. And the thing is with the streaming play on Spotify, you need 30 seconds of unabridged listening. So if you're going to ask someone to spend 10 times longer than they would on average listening to a new song in order for you to get one royalty stream, it's really important that we understand how people consume music nowadays. And that's why doing things like brand partnerships on Instagram or TikTok and trying to get your songs onto platforms where people are using and are on the phone the most. That's the sort of thing that can work really well for you. There's an act called, um, I think it was Happy Alone from Cork. And I remember someone telling me this. Um, sorry, Emmett, if you're listening. Someone telling me this, that essentially Happy Alone were watching Bring Me The Horizon on a live Instagram video. And Bring Me The Horizon were talking and music was playing in the background. Then out of nowhere, a Happy Alone track started playing on the background and Happy Alone loved Bring Me The Horizon. And then all of a sudden, what happens is the guy told me that the band, uh, Happy Alone, reached out to him and said, oh my God, Bring Me The Horizon are playing our track. This is amazing. And he said to them immediately, you need to DM them right now saying you're listening and this is amazing. Thank you so much. And what happened was then that because they DM'd them and identified, you know, oh my God, I didn't know your song was playing. They were like, oh my God, we love you guys. Would you come over and play All Points East with us, our festival that we're running? And like, you never know the thing that's going to catapult you from like being a smallish band who's getting a little bit of breakthrough to then all of a sudden getting to play festivals with your favorite bands who are also listening to your music. So when it comes to income, it's as much about investing your time as it is about kind of worrying about the money. There's no overnight successes. There, there are none. There are long, tireless nights that go in with managers and labels and publishers and to try and figure out a way to make and break this act in order to have them have some sort of sustainable career. Like not everyone is going to be constantly creative. We're all going to have peaks and troughs. We're going to have you know, amazing times and slumps when it comes to creativity. And it's about trying to make sure that we're keeping creators safe like mental burnout is there it's very prevalent there's a lot of artists now talking about mental health and touring about essentially treating covid and the idea of going back on tour like flicking a light switch and going to you know the way you were baking banana bread now you're going to do madison square gardens and having that kind of those palpitations of like concern and worry how in some cases right now there can be a little bit of um reticence with older populations or those that are kind of a bit nervous maybe are ill or are susceptible to kind of getting ill going to gigs again so like ticket sales sometimes are fluctuating they're spiking mm -hmm. they're, they're falling and um, it just is important that we recognise that not every tour is going to be financially viable right now in today's society but as we get out of COVID and as we move forward the idea is that we kind of get back to and I'm doing air quotes here in a podcast <laughs> at normal and we try and make sure that those uh, artists are being supported it's tough being on all the time. Yeah, yeah.
you know, I need rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really, really interesting to hear you because everywhere I read that touring live is the main source of income. But it's interesting to point out that things have changed post-COVID. So it's really interesting. And um, coming from that, the reason why I was reading about touring being the main source of income is because I was trying to read more about streaming services income. Let's have a really to check. People might not generate money from streaming services. It's quite unlikely. There's only a handful of artists who make a proper income out of streaming services. But I think instead of being just anti-streaming services, we can highlight how important they can be to be more public and that bring in more audience to your shows. And then just it being a springboard to channel audience to other sources of income. So I think that that's an important point to um, to address. Yeah, I think we could um, take a very grim look at streaming services if we want to, but that's not really going to change anything. Like, you know, streaming services are essentially platforms that we listen to music. One of the things that I find really interesting about streaming platforms is that if I was to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music, I get access to pretty much all of the world's recorded music, pretty much. And I can listen to that whenever I want, especially if I pay for a premium service. I can listen to offline playlisting. So I get access to this. But at the same time, if I want to watch Stranger Things, I have to subscribe to Netflix. If I want to watch Ted Lasso, I've got to subscribe to Apple TV. If I want to watch House of the Dragon, I've got to subscribe to Now TV or have a Sky Atlantic pass. And I might be at home paying £60 or €60 a month to subscribe to four main streaming services. And if I do that, that's windowed content on different platforms. Whereas for music, we seem to be in a single, not a chokehold, but all the services are offering all the music. Whereas for audiovisual, for TV and film, it's all split. The things that are going to happen with streaming over the next while is streaming prices are going to increase. It's going to happen. There's not going to be a case where we say Spotify is always nine ninety nine. My Netflix subscription has been going up every year to 18 months for the past six, seven, eight years. And I've still been keeping up with it. And I think that the more income that's generated from streaming, it really should go to address any sort of concerns or that, that artists have with streaming services. It should be putting and funneled into a pot uh, that should be going to, to kind of pay more money towards, you know, songwriters or artists or, you know, those that are at the the lower threshold that they're seeing some sort of potential bonus payments for, for X, Y and Z. But I know that with a lot of artists, and I do talk to a lot of students, obviously, all the time, streaming is just part of your income stream. It's not it's not the thing. Like if you're going to go play live, if you're going to try and get sync, if you're going to do streaming, if you're going to try and sell merch, you know, there's all these different things and all these plates you have to sp- spin. Streaming is just one. So you have to make sure that you're kind of creating music as a songwriter, recording it and releasing it because that's the sort of thing that generates ticket sales because people want to see that play and want to see you play. And if you're doing that, you've got to create these campaigns where, you know, you're trying to build out your audience fan base. You're trying to, you know, understand what it means to put in this money in order to get this money back and grow your fan base. It's 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 not, if everyone had the answer, everyone would do this. Like mm-hmm. there's about 230, I think it's 230 artists on Spotify that have gotten more than a billion streams. And like, you know, the thing is people ask me all the time, what's a Spotify streaming rate? What's an Apple Music streaming rate? What well, is the rate? Do you want to explain that? Like yeah, the, well, it, it, it's... The fact it's, that it's not a per stream and it's, it's actually yeah. a stream share model. It's, it's not the case where we can say, okay, there's an actual rate. Because the thing is, every single person on Spotify is potentially listening. And not just Spotify, Apple Music is listening on different platforms and different tiers. So the question is, someone says, 
what's a stream worth? And like, well, what service were you on? What tier were you on? Were you on a freemium tier, a premium tier, a family tier, a student tier? What territory was it played in? Because territories have different rates. There's all these questions that have to get asked about like what stream? Because if you've got a thousand streams, all of them are potentially streamed on different countries, different platforms, different tiers. And I have to explain to students that it's about just not worrying so much about the numbers at the start. It's actually identifying those that are listening to it. They are fans, potentially. If, the, if you see, start seeing recurring streams happening from any accounts, they're the ones you should be targeting. Go, hang on a second. Can I action you to request my song to be played on a radio in Jakarta? Could I ask you to, you know, maybe put my song on jukeboxes in Argentina if you're listening? You know, could I, if you're listening in Bristol and there's 60, 70 people listening in Bristol, wow, I could potentially do a show over there. Like use that data to try and, you know, benefit and grow your fan base. It's the starting point. Yes, at some point if your career expands and grows, you're definitely going to see an increase in stream count. If you get a really big sync and your song is featured in Love Island or something like that for like 30 seconds, people are going to Shazam that. You're going to see this big spike in streaming. It all works together. It's, it is one huge organism. You can't just separate out the streaming and say, um, I'm not happy with that. I'm not getting syncs. That's a very jaded attitude. Like, have you really tried things? Have you grown your fan base? Have you reached out to industry? You know, have you talked to someone and sat down and tried to figure out a path? Um, and I don't want to say that in a kind of a know-it-all way. No, like, as I said, if everyone could do this, they would. But a lot of people are. Remember, the 100,000 a day is a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There's no possibility that all the A&Rs in the world could listen to every single piece of music uploaded every day. So what you're trying to do is break through the noise. If 90,000 of those 100,000 uploads are people just randomly uploading without a campaign thought, then you've got to be one of the small few that actually try to pitch for editorial playlists, algorithmic playlists, third-party playlists. So the stream conversation is, I won't say it's a tired one, but it is something where at least I can see with Spotify, they've gone down the loud and clear route. Um, They've set up an information section on a website that explains exactly how they work, their stream share model. It's a part of your artistry it's a part of it it's not don't be defined by it like you know seeing the you know sad face minus 1000 stream count like at some point that will break through a thousand and your next release you will be in a better position you'll have learned from this and you'll know you want to focus more on this 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 certain areas certain um, demographics certain geographics and the idea now with your fans is to try and get them to as I said before request radio play Um, add you to their playlist, talk to their friends about it, post on social media and get them into a kind of a call to action activated mode where they're kind of acting as your street team in those local areas. So there is a lot to be said for the way streaming is going to go. But I do like the way that like you can now start really engaging properly with your fans all over the world. Wow. You've covered everything and said it in a very, very nice way. So thank you. Um, it's definitely important to point out the difference between um, a lean back and a lean forward type of listening. And people may sound a bit obsessed by playlists and number of streams. Those numbers actually don't generate that much money, but it's better to maybe have less streams, but of 
local people who will go to your show, buy your merch, follow you for 10 years rather than being on a playlist of, you know, shower playlist and people don't even know who you, the name of your band. And that's never going to generate more than, you know, the 20 times they listen to your song on Spotify, which is going to be maybe like 10 cents. Um, and that's pretty much it. So I think it's important and, and you definitely... Um, explain it in a, in a really nice way so thanks and overall explain things perfectly I completely understand where your students are captivated by what you say <laughs> it's it's great so much input and um, as you said there's loads of resources online um, I find I find some some stuff about Spotify as well in terms of how their stream share model works so if anyone wants to know more and obviously googling emro etc um, I think a really a really good book <clears throat> to read if you're interested in kind of how income is divided digitally is Chris Cook's um, Dissecting the Digital Dollar. So it was a, um, Chris Cook is the kind of uh, writer editor for CMU, uh, which is Complete Music Update. He's got a great podcast called Setlist. Um, he's just a fountain of knowledge of the UK and global music industry. Really interesting person to listen to. If you're interested in playlisting, there's a really interesting guy called Mike Warner. He's now working in, I think, Believe Digital, but he wrote a book called Work Hard, Playlist Hard. <laughs> and it's amazing. I mean, the first edition is good, but the second edition that he brought out contains a huge array of pictures. So like, I'm, I'm not saying I just need pictures to be able to read, but it's cool to be able to see all these screenshots of like how to pitch for playlists on Spotify, on Apple Music, on Tidal, on Angami in India. You know, having conversations about your global presence. It's not just about Spotify and Apple Music. It's about looking wider and going, what's my impact on Melon in South Korea? What's my impact on Rezo in sub-Saharan Africa? What's going on on Ngami? What's going on in Tencent or NetEase? The platforms that we don't normally use, but that's where your potential fans are globally. If you consider that you want to be based in Ireland and you want to somehow, you know, have a fan base, a huge fan base in Ireland, your first fan base could be in Sweden. Your first fan base could be in Thailand because that, they love the music that you make and you don't want to forget about them. You want to make sure you're claiming your profiles on those platforms where they're listening to music. When you release music, it's a global event. It mightn't feel like it. It could feel like a drop in the ocean because 100,000 tracks are being uploaded every day. But you've got to think globally. You can't just live on a little spit of rock on the edge of Europe <laughs> and consider that you are somehow going to be discovered or found. You've got to make that noise yourself. Absolutely. Wise words, wise words. <laughs> Thank you. For my very last question, Aaron, I'm not going to talk to the music business head. I'm going to talk to the music lover. So that last segment of each episode is related to the title of the podcast, The Music Tricked Me, where I ask uh, every guest, is there a record or an artist that made you go, hold on, how did they do this? Did you feel tricked by someone or a record at some stage in your life? Um, tricked, I suppose. One of the first albums that I bought that was by a, an artist by themselves was Ash, Burn Baby Burn. And... I remember listening to the drums on the record because I was really interested. And this was a couple of years even before I started playing drums. But I remember always being really interested in rhythms and hearing like how punchy the snare was and going like, how is that sound? I can't make that in a table. I can't do this. And knowing a couple of drummers that live beside me and then sometimes hitting their snares and going, that's not the sound. That's not the sound. How can I get this? And it just really got me interested in trying to create sounds, achieve sounds, understanding like, the things that producers do to go, well, actually what you don't do is you get that perfect snare. What you do is you add an extra snare strand at the bottom or you use this particular type of gel or you do this to get a deeper tone. You move the mic this way, you position this. And I think the trickery is always that thing of like 
trying to figure out how was that created? Because if I can't create it there and then, I always get confused and interested as to how production techniques from the 60s, like you're looking at like uh, the Beatles and kind of how Mr. Martin would go ahead and try to create really interesting ways using, like when I see those guys in like white coats, pristine coats, treating it as a real engineering process, but yet the Beatles themselves trying to be really creative with the limitations of the time. Ash Burn Baby Burn really kind of was one of my first albums I fell in love with, but also trying to just recre recreate rhythms and hearing sounds and trying to go, why can't I make that? Why doesn't that do that like that if I detune this? or So yeah, that was one of the ones that always kind of caught me out um, initially that made me get more and more in love with music. Brilliant. Well, here you go, guys. You can give that a spin and discover it or rediscover it and check that snare sound. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much. Chatting with you has really been a great way of finishing my day. Thanks so much for your time, your input, and I wish you all the best for what's coming next. Thanks, Elise. <laughs> all right. <laughs>